Our Father, we rest in You today, for You are the great God, the One who is worthy of all of our trust. And as I think of this group as we gather today, and the many needs that are represented here, may we cast all of our cares upon You, knowing that You care for us. We pray for our missionaries around the world, hundreds that You've given us to partner with. I pray for one brother in particular and the challenges he faces there in the Middle East. We pray that You'd help him as he feels the turmoil of the government that is over him. The King's heart is in Your hand. You turn it however You wish. Give him favor. We pray for our brothers in Russia and the new restraints that have come upon them, some even being arrested in the last week for sharing their faith. God, give them grace and strength. Help them to obey You rather than men. Now we come and we open Your Word together. And we come with needy hearts because You told us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge You. Thank You that You left us not as orphans, but You gave us the help or the Spirit to help us to take what you have written here and apply it to our lives. I pray wherever someone may be at, the newest Christian or the oldest Christian or even the unbeliever, that today the Spirit of God would meet the deepest needs. Come and fill me and use me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's Word with you this morning, Daniel chapter 11. We've been working our way chapter by chapter through this great book. Today we are in the 11th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right and you will soon come to Daniel. Since the late 19th century, the book of Daniel has been under vicious attack. Humanistic scholars under the guise of quote-unquote Christian scholarship have deemed Daniel to be historical fiction written around 165. And of course, that's based on a presupposition. Instead of it being written in the 6th century B.C., they say it was written around 165 B.C. And they say that based on the fact that they do not believe in prophecy. Look, the key is in the front door. If you can't believe the first words in the Holy Scripture, in the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. If you can't believe those words, you can't believe the rest. And so Genesis and Daniel are the two biggest attacked books in all of the Bible. A professor in one lauded theological seminary teaches that Daniel was written during the Maccabean period. Now you know that between Malachi and Matthew, there was a 400-year period where there was no prophet in Israel. Sometimes we call that the period of so-called silent, the silent years, but they're not silent at all. God writes about what will happen in that 400-year period here in the book of Daniel. And so one student asked that professor, how could he say that Daniel was not written by Daniel, but someone who just called himself Daniel, when Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 said Daniel wrote it? He said, well, I happen to know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus did. Hmm. Well, for the unsaved man, the miraculous goes against his natural mind. And when you come to these 35 verses that we're going to look at today, there is 135 specific prophecies. And each of these prophecies can be corroborated with a study of history, and they have all literally actually been fulfilled. It's one of the mightiest irrefutable proofs 
to show that the Bible is the only book God wrote. There is no fulfilled prophecy in the Quran or the Book of Mormon, the Upanishad, the Vista, anything you can think of. Only the Holy Scripture has fulfilled prophecy. Now, let me bring you into the context to remind you from this chart here. You can see the book divides into two halves, chapters 1 through 6, largely historical, chapters 7 through 12, largely prophetical. And here in 7 through 12, the second half of the book where we find ourselves, it's filled with visions and dreams of something that is going to take place in the future. And as I noted in our last time together, chapters 10, 11, and 12 form a unit. Now, unlike the dreams in chapters 2, 4, and 5, they are the dreams of others that Daniel interprets. Here in this section of the book, Daniel receives his own visions, and an angel or angels interpret what they mean. Now, remember, 10, 11, and 12 are a unit. 10 serves as a prologue to chapter 11. 11 is the vision itself contains one of the most extensive, longest visions in all of the entire book. And chapter 12, we will see later on, is a postscript. Now, that's the broad context. Let's zoom in on the immediate context. Chapter 11 really divides into two halves. The first half, 1 through 35, is telling us what is going to happen through the first 69 weeks. Remember, this is not irrelated to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. 69 weeks, a gap of time, we're in that gap called the church age, and then the coming 70th week called the great tribulation. He is writing what is happening during that first 69 weeks, and that 69th week ends as we saw, mathematically as recorded in Daniel the ninth chapter with Palm Sunday, AD 32. We're in that space of time, and then when we come to verses 36 to 45, he is going to describe what's going to happen in the final seven years of time. So today we're going to look at a number of individuals, one who is a type of foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. And next week, we will look at the actual Antichrist himself. Now remember what is happening. Seventy years of bondage was dictated by God because of their disobedience. And when we came to the 10th chapter, the first verse, we discovered that the bondage time was over. They, were, they had been freed for two years, but there was a big problem. When they first arrived in Babylon, as Jeremiah the prophet records, everybody wanted to go home. Nobody wanted to be there. But 70 years later, the house of bondage had become a house of business. It had become comfortable to use the metaphor there of the Egyptian time of bondage. Oh, you know, the leeks and melons, they were better back in Egypt. So they don't want to leave. There's somewhere around two to three million Jews in the Babylonian captivity. And according to the book of Ezra, only 49,897 choose to go back. Now remember, this whole prophecy is introduced in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, where we are told it is the third year of Cyrus's reign. And something happened in the third year of Cyrus's reign that moves Daniel to go to God in prayer, to lay aside the fancy food so that he can give himself with simple food that takes little preparation to give himself fully to prayer and seeking the face of God. Now, Ezra records what happened in that year. Let me read it to you, Ezra 3 and verse 3. Those that went back, they set up an altar on its foundation. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. But the fear 
of those in the land that terrorize them, paralyze them. And so we read in Ezra 3 and verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. And so when they finally get the courage to start building, Satan sends some of his emissaries and they write a letter, if you remember, to the king and tell them that, tell the king that their real intention is to fortify themselves that they don't need to pay taxes. And according to Ezra chapter 4, the king stops all building. And so here in the third year, Darius gets wind of all that has happened, and, uh, or Daniel gets wind of it, and his heart is broken, he is burdened, he is seeking God in prayer. And if you remember in the 10th chapter where we were last time, there is an invisible battle that is raging this morning. There are angels here today, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, that are worshiping with us. They're watching the church. The congregation is much larger than you realize. But in the invisible realm, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And we saw there, there was an unnamed angel who brings an answer to Daniel's prayer but on the way to bringing that answer, he is intercepted by a fallen wicked angel called the Prince of Persia. Satan has his demons, and they are organized in ranks. But Michael, the archangel of God, intervenes and allows the messenger angel to get to Daniel to give him the vision. And so when the 21-day angelic battle is over, God's angel gets to God's man. That's chapter 10. And it is a picture of what we read in Ephesians 6, that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And let me just say parenthetically, I'm not surprised that the devil did not want Daniel to get this message. Number one, we're going to read a foreshadowing of his coming man, but next week when we come to verse 36, we're going to read of his actual man. The Old Testament says more about the Antichrist than the New Testament does. And we're going to learn about the Antichrist next week. One, he doesn't want Daniel to know about this coming world wicked ruler, but neither does he want him to believe in the veracity of God's word. And what we read here that Daniel records for us proves the absolute authority of the Word of God. Satan has always tried to get people to question what God has said. All the way back in the garden, did God really say that? Certainly God didn't mean that. And so what we have here in this chapter in 35 verses, from Daniel's perspective, it was future. It hadn't happened yet. He's writing about 500 years before Christ. From our perspective, every single prophecy except the final one of the coming Antichrist has been fulfilled to the nth degree. And so when you study this chapter, if you study it carefully, you have to come to one of two conclusions. You either have to say the Bible is the Word of God or it's just a fairy tale book. Now, I'll be truthful with you. If you came today for a barn-burning sermon, you're not going to get one. And if you don't like history you probably will be asleep before we are done. But I am committed when I go through a book of the Bible to preach every single verse. And to be honest, I've never heard this section of Scripture in my life preached on in a sermon context. Now, you will learn it in a seminary. You might explore it in a small group Bible study. I've never heard it preached from a pulpit. And most pastors, when they come to it, they just summarize it in about two minutes. 
And then they get to the meat of the chapter, as they would consider it, but this is meat too, of the coming Antichrist. But we're going to work through it, verse by verse, and I know I'm going to lose some of you, so come back next week. But let me just remind you, there are a lot of people who are named in this chapter, or who are alluded to in this chapter. But there are three principal people, as you can see on your outline, that we're going to explore. Three great figures, Alexander the Great, Antiochus, or excuse me, Alexander the Greek, Antiochus the Great, and then Antiochus the God, as he referred to himself. So we're going to start this morning first with the world of Alexander the Great. And he opens by teaching us something about the success of Alexander. In the first four verses, and what I'd encourage you to do is literally keep your finger on the text. Because it is so detailed and you'll lose your place. So try to keep your finger on the verse. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor tonight or Thursday night and we'll get you one. But you need a Bible in this church to really grow You need one, and you need to bring a paper edition and not one of the electronic ones. There's a place for them. I had one of the earliest electronic Bibles ever produced, but there are no substitute for the paper Bible this morning. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. So we need to ask a question. Who is speaking, and precisely, who is the I mentioned here in verse 1? Who do you think? No, not Daniel. (laughs) Uh, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added in the 12th century in the Latin Vulgate Bible to help people to find their way around the Bible. And sometimes they can be helpful, sometimes they can be distracting. And so the last sentence of chapter 10 needs to be read with the first sentence of chapter 11. Let me read it to you. It says, Yet there is one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose, this unnamed angel of chapter 10, to be an encouragement and a protection for him, that is Michael, your prince, Michael the archangel. So this is a continuation of thought from the 10th chapter. This angel who is speaking to Daniel here is referring to a past incident that happened two years earlier when this visitor went to Michael the archangel and aided him in something that he was doing. Just as Michael helped him in the third year of Cyrus, chapter 10, verse 1, this unnamed angel helped Michael the archangel on an earlier occasion. And so these two mighty angels of God care and give mutual assistance to each other. Now, who is this unnamed angel? Most expositors would probably conclude it's Gabriel, and they're probably right. And they do so for three reasons. Number one, up until this time in the book of Daniel, it's the angel Gabriel who delivers both visions in chapters 8 and chapters 9. And so it's assumed that he will deliver the vision here in chapter 11. Second, it's the angel Gabriel who is known for bringing special revelation to the people of Israel. In fact, he is the one who appears to Zacharias in the New Testament, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Israel's Messiah, to to tell him about um, this one called Jesus and his son John who's going to lead the way. And by the way, Gabriel is the only named angel other than Michael. Now people say, what about the angel Moroni? People ask me, he's in the Book of Mormon and he's a moron angel and he's not found in the Scripture, all right? Third, since Michael is an archangel, 
And since this angel provides mutual assistance, no doubt he is an angel of great rank. So for that reason, most assume it's Gabriel. Do I know that for sure? No. I can't speak where God hasn't speak spoken. But it's interesting, in either case, to chew on, to recognize that there is a holy war that is happening even this morning in the invisible realm. And let me add, it's not by accident that God tells us that this event happened, notice, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Remember Darius the Mede? I told you chapters 1 through 6 happened chronologically, but the visions in chapters 7 through 12 can be overlaid over 1 through 6. They happen in and around chapters uh, 1 through 6. And if you remember in the 6th chapter, Darius the Mede was the one who is in control when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And because of the supernatural work of God, his attitude is totally changed. In Daniel 6.26, we read, Darius speaking, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So it's God's miraculous deliverance of Daniel that caused Darius the Mede to totally reverse his attitude towards the Jewish people, and that certainly made him uh, amenable to Cyrus's degree. Remember, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. So there are two men who are ruling, Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede. And so behind the scenes in the heavenly realm, there is this battle that is raging, in this case, in favor of God's people. We read last time, let me read it to you again, Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, knowing what had happened to Daniel in the lion's den and the decree that his co-ruler made, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. So God moves in the heart of the king. The king's heart is in the hand of God. And God moves in the heart of Cyrus the king. Verse 3 of that chapter says, Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. And the God of Israel, he is God who is in Jerusalem. So 150 years before this king Cyrus is ever even born, Isaiah prophesied he would do that. And he not only prophesies he will do it, even before the man is born, he tells us the name of the king, namely Cyrus, who will do it. In Isaiah 44, it is I who says of Cyrus, God is speaking, he is my shepherd, he's my servant, he's my instrument, he's my tool, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So God stirred up the heart of Cyrus. You say, did Cyrus have a choice? Yes, he was a free moral agent. But very often, God orchestrates the circumstances such that he wanted to let the Jewish people go. And I believe that God used Daniel's experience and the lion's den, among other things, to work in this man's heart. And so with the Medo-Persian empire in place, the natural question would be, what is the future of this new empire? And so Daniel here in verses 2 and 3 um, speaks in addition to these two reigning kings that there would be three more Persian kings. Look at verse 2. And now I tell you the truth. 
Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And of course, that's exactly what history records. Darius the Mede is followed by three more kings. Cyrus's son, Cambyses, is the first one. He's followed by a guy named Pseudo Smyrtus. Pseudo means false. And he uh, says, because he looks like Cambyses, that he's the son of Cambyses. He convinces the people that he should be king. And so he takes the place of the throne. But when they find out he's a fake, a third king comes, and his name is Darius I, a different Darius than Darius the Mede. In fact, Darius I is the one who's mentioned in the book of Ezra chapters 5 and 6. Ezra is divided into two parts, so you got to keep that straight. I won't go there, but then there's this fourth king, Xerxes IV that's mentioned. Um, he is found in the book of Esther. Remember, uh, Ahasuerus now, if you're using the New International Version, they don't call him Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. They call him Xerxes. And very often, there are many illustrations in Scripture, a king could have two names. Now, the Hebrew text says Ahasuerus, but his more common, best-known name in his history is Xerxes, so they use the more common name. But this is why you need a literal translation of the Bible. But if you remember, Ahasuerus was the king who, you know, had that beauty contest and so forth. So we read of this fourth king that he will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Xerxes had one of the largest armies in human history. It was an army of two and a half million men. And he invades Greece. However, he's unsuccessful. He's defeated by the Greek army and he goes back home somewhat despondent. And Xerxes, though, of course, never ever forgets what the Greeks did to him. And the Greeks don't forget what he attempted to do to them. And so they want revenge. And they get revenge through another king that's mentioned in verse 3. You know him, Alexander the Great. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And he did just as he pleased. We saw him pictured in an earlier vision, and he conquers the world in lightning speed. And at the age of 33, he sits down and he weeps because there are no more armies to conquer. He suddenly dies unexpectedly, and then his kingdom is divided. Look at verse 4. By the way, this is being written hundreds of years before it happened. This is history pre-written, verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, as soon as he rises to power, uh, at the zenith of his career, we learn his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out, notice, toward the four points of the compass, though not of his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. So he dies, and the scripture prophesies that none of his descendants would succeed him. Now, his half-brother, Philip, tried to succeed him, but as soon as he steps up, he's murdered. His illegitimate son, Hercules, tries to succeed him, and one of Alexander's generals murders him. His other son, Aegis, who's born shortly after his death, was put under guardianship, but he is soon murdered so that he cannot take the throne. In fact, then his sister, Cleopatra, 
queen of Epis, she tries to take the throne and she's murdered. And before long, there's no living relatives left for this guy. None of his descendants, not one, is left to take the throne. So after Alexander dies, confusion reigns in the kingdom. And verse 4 prophesies that his kingdom will be parceled out to the four points of the compass. Here you can see it on this picture here. He has four generals, as history records. And the names of those four generals, Cassandra, he's given Europe. Lysimachus, he's given Asia Minor. Seleucus is given Syria. Syria is right north of Israel. And Ptolemy, he has given Egypt, south of Israel, in North Africa. And it all happened just as God said. So now beginning in verse 5, the prophetic focus turns towards uh, from the success of Alexander to the successors of Alexander. You see it there in your outline? Verse 5 refers to the southern point of the four points of the compass, referred to in verse 5 as the king of the south. Let me read to you. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Now, when you read south, the wise, careful reader would say, south of what? The king of the south is someone who's south of Israel. Why? Because directions in the Bible are given from Israel. Israel is viewed by the prophet Ezekiel and others as the center of the world in God's mind. If you take a flat relief map that we put in our classrooms in the 1960s, the United States was in the middle. Well, if you were to put a flat relief map on the blackboard today, God would put Israel in the middle. And so north, south, east, and west in the Bible is measured from Israel. And so the king of the south, as you read all the way through this passage, think of Egypt. The king of the north, all the way through this text, think of Syria. And so in this verse, the king of the south, that would be General Ptolemy. And when we come to verse 7, he will focus on the northern point of the compass, north of Israel, of another one of Alexander's generals, Seleucid, who is the king over Syria. And so when you think of the king of the north, think of the king of Syria. Now, there's a lot of different kings of the north and kings of the south that are mentioned all the way through this chapter. But just think in terms of the big terms, north and south, Syria and Egypt. So the northern Seleucid kings hate the southern Ptolemy kings. And for years, they're going to fight one against the other. And why does he include these two points of the four generals? Because sandwiched between Syria and Egypt is this little patch of land we call Israel. A few weeks ago, I got picked up at Tel Aviv to take me to the hotel as I arrived a day earlier, and I'm talking to this Jewish cab driver. He says, I don't understand it. He said, we've got these nations all around us, and we're just, he takes his little finger, we're just this little piece of land on the hand, just the tip of my finger, and they're all against us. And not only, is word, not only are they against us, it seems like the whole world is against us. Why is it? And of course, I had an answer for him. God gives an answer. But we're going to see this, this turmoil that is going back and forth, and God is going to warn Israel in this passage. He's going to pre-write history that they have some very difficult years ahead. But he's reminding of that because he's not forsaking his people. And so beginning in verse 5, the prophecy focuses on two of the four generals. And it focuses on the Seleucids and the Antiochuses who will make up the northern kings and the Ptolemies who will make up the southern kings. And what we find in these two 
hundred years of history is prophecy being pre-written. That's what prophecy is. It is history pre-written. Look at verse 5. We'll hit some of the most important points. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. These verses bring us to about 250 B.C. when the king of Egypt, the king of the south, along with one of his princes, grows stronger than the king of the north, the king of Syria. And so out of a position of strength, this king attempts to make a peace treaty by using an Egyptian princess. We read of it here in verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. So according to verse 6, the king of the south's daughter was given to the king of the north to make a peace treaty. You see, one of the ways you handle disagreements in that day if you happen in this case to be the king of the south and you're not getting along with the king of the north, then you could handle the problem in one of two ways. You could either fight, you could attack, or a second option is you'd give one of your relatives in marriage to the king that's opposing you so that they, quote unquote, become family and you have a peace treaty. Remember, Solomon lived during the time of great peace. He had a thousand wives. They weren't in his bedroom every night. Most of those were just wives of convenience, political arrangements to make peace with surrounding kings. So if you had a pretty daughter, you could offer her to the opposition. You could say, if you will marry my daughter, maybe we can solve this problem. And that's precisely what happened as prophesied. And so to form this alliance between these two warring families, Ptolemy Philippus, the king of Egypt, the king of the south gave his daughter Berenice to the king of the north, the king of Syria. Look at verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Now remember, Daniel is writing this 500 years before Christ. And this all happens about 250 years before Christ. And history records that Antiochus, the king of Syria, the king of the north gave, uh, took Berenice, the king of the south, in marriage. Of course, to make that happen, this guy Antiochus Theos, who we're going to look at in just a moment, he's already married, so he has to divorce his wife Laodice in order to marry this girl. Has kind of a modern ring to it. And after two years, this guy Ptolemy Philadelphus, the daddy who gives his daughter Berenice in marriage to this guy Antiochus Theos, he dies. And so Antiochus Theos then divorces Ptolemy's daughter Berenice, and he goes back to his first wife Laodice. His first wife, not trusting the fickle behavior of her man, poisons Antiochus Theus, and then he orders the death of Berenice and her son, and she puts her own son on the throne. Verse 6 prophesies that this alliance will not work. Let me keep reading. But she will not retain her position of power. That speaks of Berenice, because dead women don't have power. Nor will he remain with his power. That's Antiochus Theus, because he was poisoned. 
But she will be given up along with those who brought her in, her dad told me, who's dead too, and the one who sired her as well as the one who supported her in those times. Now, don't miss the flow of thought. Get the big picture at least. God prophesies first about the Egyptian king, the king of the south in verse 5. Then the Egyptian princess here in verse 6. And then this Egyptian revolt in verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. He's describing one of Berenice's, the Egyptian princess's descendants. And history records that another Ptolemy, a Ptolemy Eurogetus, the brother of Berenice, is outraged at what they did to her sister. So he comes with the Egyptian army and he captures Syria. He displays great strength by entering the fortress uh, there in the port of Antioch. And he put Laodice to death. Laodice to death. Now look at verse 8. He, he, he's not done. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity into Egypt. In an Egyptian hieroglyphics along with other sources, we read in the annals of Egyptian history that this particular Ptolemy brought back 40,000 talents of silver, some 4,000 talents of gold, and some 2,500 idols, just as God prophesied. And so with his thirst for revenge satisfied, Ptolemy the Seleucus, the king of the south, on the throne signed a truce, which lasted 10 years. Verse 8, and on his part, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then we read in verse 9, then the latter, Seleucus, the king of the north, mentioned at the end of verse 8, will retain the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. So Seleucus now wanted revenge, and he makes a foolhardy attempt to invade Egypt. And he came into the realm of Egyptian waters with a, a whole fleet of ships, but he gets lost in a storm. Now, I hope you're following me. This is the world of Alexander the Great. So there, you're starting to glaze over, I can see. I'm beginning to lose you. But his great empire, remember, Alexander the Great is divided into four pieces to four generals. Syria and Egypt occupy center stage because Israel is wedged between those two countries. By the way, what I just did for you and all the names I gave you is recorded in history. When you go to seminary, when I was at Dallas Seminary, not only do you take Old Testament survey courses, but sometimes you take courses on specific books. And I was privileged to take a course under Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who taught till about a year ago. When he died at the age of 99, he was one of the great prophetic scholars alive in the last hundred years. And one of the things you typically do if you take a course in the book of Daniel is you have to go through Daniel 11, 1 to 35, and all the students will whine and cry and fuss. And you have to document from secular history everything I just said. And it's all documentable. In fact, you might want to even read the books of First and Second Maccabees. Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees were written between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 years of so-called silence. It's not silent at all because God spoke about it in Daniel 11. But those are books written between the Testament. They're not canonical. They're not part of the canon of Scripture. They're never quoted in the New Testament. Why? Because they're not viewed as inspired. But in the 1611 King James Bible, they were put in there. 
between the Testaments. Why? Because as you read in the preface of the 1611 edition of the King James, they said this records the history of the Jewish people during those 400 years. And while we do not believe they are inspired, we include them here. All the Catholics had a field day then. They said, you see, they put them in their Bible, we put them in our Bible. Now, the Catholics and the Orthodox believe they're inspired. They're not. They don't have the marks of inspiration, and I cover that carefully in my course in Bibliology. But in the 1613 edition, they remove those books. But nonetheless, First and Second Maccabees gives a detailed description of what took place, among other sources that you can read about that we are studying this morning. All right? That's, let's move now from the world of uh, Alexander the Greek to the wars of Antiochus the Great, here in verses 10 through 20. Beginning in verse 10, we're introduced to another king. He is another king of the north, another king of Syria. He's known as Antiochus the Great. And verse 10 opens with his first campaign. Verse 10 begins, and his sons, which cause you to ask, whose sons? The sons of Seleucus, the king of the north, just mentioned in verse 9, who tried to attack the king of the south, but returned. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. Now remember, when Alexander dies and his kingdom is divided into four parts to his four generals, one is led by General Seleucid, the king of the north, the king of the Syria. And one day he's out on his horse and he falls off and he dies. And so he's succeeded, as God prophesies, by two sons, who under their separate rule will mobilize a great army. One of his sons is Seleucus II. The other son is Alexander the Great, who becomes the focus of this prophecy. Verse 10, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them, Antiochus the Great, will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that they may again wage war up to this very fortress. And history concurs that, that Antiochus the Great came with a multitude of great forces, 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and he attacks Egypt. In fact, he comes right up to the fortress, the fortress there at Raphia. And the king of Egypt was not too happy. So we read in verse 11, the king of the south, the king of Egypt, will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. So the king of the Egypt, he has a big army, 73,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Now, Alexander learned when he conquered all the way to India that elephants made great battering rams, and so they had 73 elephants. He took his army, and he went to fight against Antiochus the Great. Now, where is Israel? Sandwich right between. Every time the king of the north came south or the king of the south came north, they had to go across Israel. And Daniel's recording this because he recognizes that Israel cannot go unscathed. So Israel is wedged between these two warring neighbors. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will raise a great multitude but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So Antiochus is going to lose the fight, the Bible prophesies, and the king of Egypt will take a great multitude of captives into his hand. Now stay with me, verse 12. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. So the king of Egypt gets very proud and the Bible prophesies here in verse 12, his heart will be lifted up 
Pride cometh before the fall. And so he marches away with a great multitude. History records he takes 10,000 Syrian prisoners. And before returning to Egypt in his pride, he stops in Jerusalem. The king of the south, that is the king of Egypt, demanded that he go into the most sacred part of the temple there on Mount Moriah called the Holy of Holies. But as he attempts to go into the temple, history records that he struck down to the ground and he could not move and could not speak. Frightened, he leaves, but he goes back brooding, humiliated, and he assumes that the Jewish people exercise some kind of magic on him. So when he gets home, uh, he takes tens of thousands of Jews with him. And he demands, when, he, when he's there in Jerusalem and they paralyze him, so to speak, he said, I can't believe you guys. He's so upset. He's brooding. He takes 10,000 Jews as prisoners. And he gets home and he demands that they worship his God. But the Jews, of course, refuse. And so they're martyred. 40,000 Jews are slaughtered. And he will cause tens of thousands to fall. But it's not over for the king of Egypt because God prophesies in verse 12, he will not prevail. The king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will not let this defeat rest. So beginning in verse 13, we have his further campaign. Now try to stay with me. I know this is history and I know this is difficult. So he's there in Jerusalem. He's all upset. He broods. He doesn't take 10,000 from Israel. He goes back to Egypt where there's a big community of Jews. He said, worship my God. They refuse and he slaughters them by the thousands. So we read now of his further campaign, verse 13. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So the king of the north renews this conflict again after an interval of some years, 13 to be precise. Verse 14. Now in those times, many will arise against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. So this unnamed angel tells Daniel that some of the Jewish people with a violent bent within them will become mercenary soldiers for Antiochus when he marched south towards Egypt. They no doubt reason that Antiochus could win, and if they won with his help, they would have his favor. Look at verse 15. Then the king of the north, that's Antiochus, will come, cast up a sledge ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make them stand. So Antiochus has a decisive victory over Egypt. But notice what happens to the Jewish people in verse 16. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases. And no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, that's Israel, with destruction in his hand. He brings nothing but destruction in his hand. Verse 17 elaborates. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. The daughter of women, my Hebrew Bible literally reads the daughter of femininity, which was a Hebristic term used to this day to describe a young Hebrew woman 
who's not old enough to be married and is under her mother's care and tutelage. He will give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Now, this is really interesting. Try to follow the vision given here to Daniel. In 195 BC, Antiochus the Great, this text says, comes with the power of his whole kingdom to invade Egypt. But he realized to invade Egypt, he would invite a war with Rome, which is a growing, burgeoning power at this point that Daniel wrote about uh, hundreds of years before that would come into power. And so he came in strength to negotiate, notice, bringing with him a proposal of peace. So he makes a treaty uh, with the Egyptian king, Ptolemy Epiphanes, and his daughter, Cleopatra, is given to the king's son. They're both young. That's why she's called the daughter of women. And according to verse 17, Antiochus expected his daughter to take a stand for him and to be on his side. He expected her to be a spy of sorts, that she would favor her daddy. But he failed to reckon the power of love, and his plan failed. Hey, uh, ladies, how would you like to be the daughter of a king like that? So the plan of Antiochus the Great backfires. And he didn't expect his daughter to fall in love with this young man. He expected her to be loyal to Egypt. But Antiochus is not through yet. So beyond his first campaign and beyond his further campaign, now we come to Antiochus's final campaign beginning in verse 18. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. So Antiochus comes with 300 ships and he attacks Greece and Asia Minor to strengthen his position against the Egyptians. The Romans send a delegation warning him that he had no right because these were their lands for taxation purposes. So we read, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. The Romans are not going to take this sitting down. So they send a commander to crush Antiochus' army. And Antiochus is forced to make a humiliating peace treaty with Rome and to give his son as a hostage, as a guarantee for good behavior. He also is required to pay back Rome for the cost they incur in the war. You know, we as America go and we fight for these other countries that have billions of dollars in oil money, and we do it at your cost and my cost. And so now we are trillions of dollars in debt. And it's a law of God you cannot, you cannot spend money you do not have. It's taught directly in the Scripture. And if you spend money you don't have, someone will have to work for it. You see, the average American doesn't make 20 trillion. Who cares? <laughs> what a joke. So what? It's a big so what. Because someone's going to have to work for that money or they will devalue your money as they've done in many countries of the world and your dollar bills will become like wallpaper. So they want a repayment back. They want him to come up with the money, verse 19. So he will turn his face towards the fortresses of his own, la- of his own land. In other words, he, he heads home. And he goes home to a temple called the Temple of Bel. It's one of the people's most prized temple, and it's filled with millions of dollars of gold and silver. And he decides he's going to plunder it to pay the Roman tax. And the people revolt, and they end up killing this guy. But he will stumble and fall and be no more. In addition, verse 20, then in his place, one will arise 
who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Israel is called the jewel of his kingdom. Antiochus is succeeded by his eldest son, who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. And who is this oppressor? The IRS. The new king has a tax collector, and his name is Heliodorus. And Heliodorus comes to get the needed funds. And so this time he comes to Israel, and instead of exacting more money out of the people because he had been squeezing them to death for money, he decides that he's going to go into the Jerusalem temple and steal all the gold and silver that's there. And in the process, he has given a dream telling him not to try. God sometimes speaks even to unbelievers in a dream. Pilate's wife was given a dream that this one was innocent. We've already seen a pagan king in this book have a dream from God. So with no money in hand, fearful to go into the Holy of Holies, into the whole temple and to plunder it, fearing the king's wrath, he poisons Antiochus' eldest son, and he dies just as God predicts in verse 20. Then in his place, one will arise, will ascend an oppressor through the jewel of the kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger, nor in battle, just like God said. All right, now, one more. I know I'm losing you fast. You're all glazing over. You don't even know where I am. You're going to forget all these names, but I don't want you to miss the big picture before we're done. There's the wickedness of Antiochus, the God. Antiochus, theos, theos. We get our word theology from it. It's the Greek word for God. I mean, you talk about a guy with an ego problem. What's your name? Antiochus, the God. Antiochus, the god Epiphanes. This king is poisoned and is replaced by Antiochus Epiphanes, another son who is often referred to as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Why? Because he's a picture we're going to see. He is a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. Now, when we come to verse 36 next time, we're not going to be looking at a foreshadowing. We are going to be reading a prophecy of the actual Antichrist who will come in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. You don't want to miss it. Now, this king, who is a picture of the coming Antichrist, his career divides into five parts. First, let's think about Antiochus Epiphanes' contemptibility. We read in verse 21, in his place, a despicable person, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Theos, will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now comes a new king, and he's described as a despicable person. And indeed he was. He's one of the cruelest kings the Syrians had ever known. He was unscrupulous. He had a savage temper, and he did some of the most despicable evil sins that I dare not even name. Now, the last time we saw Antiochus Epiphanes, he had been taken as a hostage by, his, by the Romans to ensure his father's good behavior. Well, Antiochus' uh, daddy was killed uh, for trying to plunder the of, temple of Bel, and so his son Seleucus comes to the throne. And when Seleucus comes to power, he wants to get his brother home. So Seleucus negotiates a deal with the Romans, giving them his own son, Demetrius, nice guy, in the place of Antiochus Epiphanes. And as on his way home from Rome, Antiochus Epiphanes learns that his oldest brother, Seleucus, had been poisoned none other than the tax collector, Helodorius, who now claimed to be the king of Syria. 
And so Antiochus Epiphanes comes home to claim the throne for himself, the throne that rightfully belonged to Demetrius, but he's being held hostage. Look at verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And that's how Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. The honor of kingship that did not belong to him, he comes quietly, he borrows some troops from a neighboring king, and he disposes of Helidorius. And with no big battle and a time of tranquility and a time of peace, he steps onto the throne by intrigue, or some of your translations say by deceit. Verse 22, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. What does that mean? Well, history records when Antiochus becomes king, the Egyptians attack him. But as God prophesied, they are unsuccessful. They are shattered. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. And also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant is an Old Testament reference to God's high priest. He is named in the book of Maccabees. His name is uh Onius, and he was the apostate high priest who was serving there in the Jerusalem temple. But he too is shattered, and then Antiochus um, has him murdered and put in his place. He has a priest who's even worse, who's a total apostate, and we read of him further in verses 23 and 24, which brings us to Antiochus Epiphanes' craftiness. Keep reading, stay with me. After an alliance is made with him, the king of the south, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against the strongholds, but only for a time. Now, this speaks of a treaty that he makes with the king of Egypt. He's convinced that the Egyptian king uh, can be his friend. The problem is, is this man is a pathological liar. Remember, he's a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. The coming Antichrist is the devil's man. Whenever the devil speaks, he speaks from his own nature. He speaks a lie. Well, this guy is a pathological liar, as history records. And so, while the king of Egypt is at ease, thinking everything's okay between him and this Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes to the capital, Alexandria, and he's sitting and relaxing. In the meantime, Antiochus Epiphanes is quietly conquering city after city, and he takes the plunder from those cities, and instead of keeping it for himself, he gives it to the people to buy allegiance. And that brings us to the third stage in his career, Antiochus Epiphanes' conquests. Briefly, we're told how he enters the Egyptian kingdom, and after he's taken all those small villages over, and he, he, um, he buys their allegiance. Look at verse 25. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for his schemes will be devised against him. Too late for the Egyptian king, because Antiochus Epiphanes with a rich booty has bought the allegiance as the master of defeat. We read in verse 26, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. 
Even those who sat at Ptolemy, the Egyptian king's table, betray him. Why? Because they had been bought out as most trusted advisors. But even with all the losses on the Egyptian side, Antiochus could not overthrow the city of Alexandria where Ptolemy, the king of the south, is headquartered. So in verse 27, both the king of the north and the king of the south go to negotiating. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Sounds like a lot of the negotiations today. People sit at a table and they lie to each other. They make these treaties of which they have no desire at all to keep. And God is saying this hundreds of years before it happened, which brings us now to his cruelty, Antiochus Epiphanes' cruelty, beginning in verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Remember that phrase, the Holy Covenant? We've already studied it here in Daniel. It refers to the Torah, to the Mosaic law in Scripture. His heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So on his way home to Syria, laden with riches and plunder, Antiochus Epiphanes heard news that enraged him. A rumor had spread in the country of Israel that Antiochus had died. And so the Jewish people are celebrating. Furthermore, the rightful high priest Jason gathers a mercenary army of about a thousand men and threw out the apostate high priest. So when Antiochus arrives in Jerusalem, he slaughters 80,000 Jews and he takes 40,000 into slaveries. And you can read all of his atrocities in First and Second Maccabees. Now remember, those books are not inspired, but they do record history. This man was vicious. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name means Antiochus the Magnificent One, is nicknamed by the Jews Antiochus Epimanes, Antiochus the Madman. And it all happened just like God said. He sets himself against the Mosaic Law, against God's Holy Covenant, and he returns home. And again, he is a picture of the coming Antichrist. Then finally, Antiochus Epiphanes' crimes. We read now in verse 29, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. Now his philosophy is, when at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So he goes back to Egypt one more time to try to overthrow the capital city of Alexandria. But instead of having great success, he has no success. This last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. Verse 30, for the ships of Kittim will come against him. The ships are of Kittim. That's part of a Roman province. They come in 168 BC with all these ships, and they basically encircle Antiochus, and they draw a line in the sand, and they say, listen, you need to do what we want you to do. And so humiliated and frustrated, he goes back to Syria with his army. We read in verse 30, for the ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return home and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
So he stops home in Jerusalem on the way home, and he seeks more revenge from the Jewish people. He needs a scapegoat to take out all his frustrations. So this time, on a Sabbath day, when the Jews are involved in worshiping God, he slaughters 100,000 Jewish people. More than that, history records. And the only ones who have his favor are those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Those who are apostate Jews and not true Jews who refuse to obey the living God. And so he creates this universal religion, which, by the way, we will see next time is what the Antichrist will do. Verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So he conspiring with these apostate Jews, he goes into the Holy of Holies and he does away with the regular sacrifice. God required the shedding of blood, prefiguring the Messiah's blood because sin deserves death and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so because Satan absolutely hates what it symbolizes, the blood of Christ that will defeat him and rob him of his power, His man, who's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come, goes in. He does away with the daily regular sacrifice. He erects a statue of the god Zeus. The Antichrist, by the way, Revelation tells us, will erect a statue of himself there in the Holy of Holies. He erects a statue of the god Zeus. He slaughters a pig, an unclean animal. He puts it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and all over the inside of the Holy of Holies to mock God's holy truth. This was an abomination. It was a disgrace. It's the abomination that makes the temple desolate, useless, unholy. And again, it is a picture, as Jesus will tell us in Matthew 24 that we will study, of what the coming Antichrist is going to do. Verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Verse 32 tells me that Antiochus, by his smooth and lying words, will turn those who are not true believers to godlessness away from God's holy covenant. By the way, that's what the Antichrist will do. Those who say they are Christians, those who say they are born again, they will be turned away because they are not really born again. But by contrast, the people who know their God, the title of this morning's message, will display strength and take action. And so under a priest by the name of Matthias Maccabeus, who has a son by the name of Judas Maccabeus, they lead a revolt against the Syrian stronghold. Verse 33. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. You see, understand what's going on. The Essenes, who are writing during this time about the events that had taken place, it was already history for them. The Essenes spoke of this group of people led by Judas Maccabeus, who want, who is so outraged that God's holy temple would be defiled. He refers to this group as the wise. Daniel describes them here with the words, they have insight among the people. Why? Because they're reading Daniel 11 and they've got their finger on it. Yeah, that's happened. That's happened. This is next. They know exactly 
point by point by point by point by point what God is doing and what God is about to do. And so the godly who have understanding, they show strength, they take action, they want no part with this wicked man, and because of it, they are persecuted. Some are roasted alive, thousands are crucified, many are sold into slavery, and some die by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder. Now look how he closes. Now when they fall... They will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some who fought in the Maccadean revolt did so, not to worship the one true God, but in hypocrisy, no doubt, wanting reward and plunder. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, verse 35 becomes a hinge verse, and he's going to move from a man who foreshadows the Antichrist, to the actual Antichrist. And what we will read next time is mind-blowing. Now, I know that most pastors would not preach what I just preached. A lot of you are already glazed over and near asleep. But I am committed to preaching every chapter and every verse when I go through a book of the Bible, whether you like it or not. But with that said, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Two applications. Number one, putting your faith in the reliability of Scripture is not a foolish decision. That's the first application. Now, I know lost people who go through the book of Daniel and they hate it because it has the supernatural all over it. But if they are willing to be intellectually honest with themselves, they will discover that there are 135 prophecies. And in a course in the book of Daniel, the students have to list every single one of those and then document from human history where and how it was fulfilled. This section of Scripture is so incredibly precise because, again, prophecy is history pre-written. But if you begin with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the miraculous, then you have to come up with another explanation for this. Now, here just a week or so ago, we stood at this place. As you go to this place called Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you talk and share with the people what took place, right behind you is this cave. This is cave number four. In cave number four, along with a number of other caves, was found the book of Daniel in its complete form. And the Essenes in that same cave wrote a lot about Daniel. And he was found in many caves because they so esteemed Daniel. And they repeatedly in their own literature refer to Daniel as the book of Daniel the prophets. That's how they viewed him. And by the way, the dating of those scrolls dismissed the possibility that this was written after the facts. You see, prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest edition we had of the Old Testament was about 900 A.D. But now they're finding copies of the Old Testament that go back a few centuries before Christ. And many of the prophecies that are written in Daniel based on the dating of the scrolls happen even after. Not all of them, but many of them. And so they are left with a real quandary. How are they going to deal with this prophecy? 
one friend trying to convince another friend of the miraculous nature of Scripture. He said, suppose you were walking past a construction site and a large steel hoist suddenly fell and just missed you by an inch. Wouldn't that be a miracle? He said, no, that would be an accident. He said, well, suppose the next day you walked by the same site and another large steel joist fell and just missed you by a sliver of space. Wouldn't you call that a miracle? He said, no, I'd call that a coincidence. He said, well, suppose the third day the same thing happened. Wouldn't you call that a miracle? He said, no, I'd call that luck. My friend, there's no such thing as luck for the Christian. Don't ever say, oh, I was lucky. Not if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never use that word. Now, the unbeliever may have luck, but not the Christian. And so the liberal theologian, because they don't believe in the miraculous, therefore they don't believe in prophecy that only the Bible has, they have to come to one of three conclusions. They either say, well, this is coincidence, or two, they say it's written after the fact, Or three, they say it's written by a deceitful, lying person. The liberal scholars think they are so clever and they are so comfortable in their viewpoint, but they are so ignorant. For a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And why does the unbeliever kick against the Bible? Why, when you share the gospel with people, where people say, well, that's just the Bible. It's been written so many times and translated. You can't even believe it, which is a statement of sheer ignorance. Why do they kick against the Bible? Because of the implications it has on your life. And Jesus said, many will not come to the light because they agapao, Agape love, they willfully love their sin and they choose darkness over the truth. There's no other book like this book. There's no other religious book on the planet that has fulfilled prophecy. And that's why I went through this just as a reminder. And if you can't remember a single name, it's here for you to go back and document. Second, I learned from this text of Scripture, when you know God, you will stand up for God. We just read in verse 32, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now this prophecy concerns the days of apostasy when Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of Antichrist, it's a prophecy of what God will ultimately do as we'll see next time. But these men in the days of Judas Maccabeus, how did they know God? How did they know what was going on? They were reading the Scriptures. Yes, there is general revelation in the clouds and the oceans and the mountains, but all the specific revelation where you come to know God specifically is found here in this book. And they knew what was going on point by point by point. And they knew that God was going to do what He said. And if it meant that they would lose their lives, they were going to lose it for the glory of God. They take action and they display strength. Listen, this man is just a type. He's just a picture, an illustration of the coming Antichrist. And the type is never as strong as the reality. And what Antiochus Epiphanes did, who is a Hitler type in his day, is child's play compared to what the coming Antichrist is going to do. 
But the people who know the living God in that day will display strength. Those who are converted during the tribulation period, if it costs them their head, and the Bible teaches in the book of Revelation that tens of thousands will be beheaded because they refuse to give themselves to the Antichrist. Now, if you know Christ, you won't be here because you will be raptured. But let me ask you a question, because there's a lot of Christians in our day who know the Lord enough to be saved, who can count their name written in the Lamb's book of life, but they know Him in such an infantile way that they cannot communicate the truth to their children. And because they are apathetic and not displaying strength and taking action and passionate for the living God, they are raising up apathetic kids who might give their allegiance to the Antichrist. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now before you can really take strength and show action, you need to first know God in a saving way. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And the first step to knowing the Lord is to be born again, to have His Spirit living in you. And the first step to being born again is to reach out in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you done that? Don't put it off because you have no promise of tomorrow. You may be dead tomorrow. And the living God who brought some of you here this morning because He loves you and cares about you may stop working in your heart tomorrow because you put Him off. And you may only seal your membership in the society that will give allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, Holy Father, what can we do but bow before you? And thank you that you gave us this difficult portion of Scripture and you wrote it all ever before it happened that you might silence those who will mock and make fun of your word. Thank you that there is no other book like it on the entire planet ever written in all of human history. May we, like Judas Maccabeus and those Jews who stood passionately for you, the God of Israel, may we know you and display action the way they did. I pray that our children and our grandchildren would see dads and moms and grandparents who are passionate for you that we would be able to infect them with a case of the real disease. Forgive us for our apathy when we have in our hands this morning your holy, inspired, inerrant word. And help someone today in simple childlike faith. Though they don't understand it all, they understand that they are a sinner and they cannot save themselves. And one came in their place to do it for them. Help someone today in simple faith here in Bluffton and Hilton Head and Graniteville or wherever people are watching. Help someone to cry out to you, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us to help them to grow that together we might reach the fullness that belongs to Jesus Christ. And we ask it in His holy name. Amen.